There are times then when a believer's life is so bad, so sinful, that quite simply he is no longer fit to represent God on this earth. And so for God's own glory, he takes that person's life. Join us now for Grace to the Bay as we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through sound expository teaching by our teacher, Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio outreach of Grace Church of the Bay Area located in San Mateo. If you are blessed by Dr. Chen's message and are looking for a church home, you're invited to come worship with them. Now, here is Dr. Chen. So the second truth to recognize in preparing for communion is the pardoning examination. There is a third, and that is the protecting experience. The protecting experience. Look again at verse 32. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Paul continues by explaining why we are disciplined. He connects the concept of judging with that of discipline We've seen this all along, but here is where he uses the two terms, one to explain the other. Our judgment is discipline. And we've seen that the word judge does not refer to eternal condemnation here. Basically means a decision based on an act, the act being your sin. For the believer, the decision is discipline rather than eternal condemnation. Here's a helpful way to look at it. In an American court of law, there is a judgment at the end of any trial or case. And the judgment can involve different levels of punishment. There are punishments that the judge may lay on you to teach you a lesson. Sometimes we call it simply a slap on the wrist. Maybe it's a fine. A fine that's not easy to pay. Maybe it hurts your pocketbook a little bit. So you will learn your lesson, but then... You leave the courtroom, you get in your car, and you exist as you always existed, hopefully having learned your lesson to pay your parking tickets, not to speed, or whatever it may be. Or he can lay down a life sentence or capital punishment to indicate that your punishment is permanent with no continuation of life as you know it. One is discipline. Slap on the wrist, you go free, learn your lesson. The other is condemnation. Your life is over. As believers, ours is discipline. Not because our sin is any less heinous, but because it is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, discipline serves an educational function. It's a positive thing in that it conforms us to the image of Christ. And for that to happen, we must learn from it and not just grin and bear it. Yeah, I'm going through discipline. I think this trial is discipline for that thing that I did and never dealt with. You're just like, if I know it's not going to last forever. The doctor says I'm going to get better. It's not terminal. So you just grin and bear it. And then as soon as it's over, you're like, okay, good. Back to normal. With no lasting response, no lasting change. Then you've wasted the discipline. You've wasted the trial. You've wasted the difficulty. And hear me clearly, I'm not saying that every trial in your life is discipline from the Lord. It may be, but that's not what every trial is. But my point is that we must learn from it. 
how frustrated are we as parents that we've disciplined, we've disciplined, whether it's spanking or timeout or loss of screen time or loss of dessert or whatever it may be. And yet they do it again and again. And you think, when will they learn? Why won't they learn? We don't want to be like that. Children are children. We can't act like children. We must learn. We must learn from God's Word. We must learn from the discipline. We must change and excel still more. Be holy for our God is holy. When it comes to disciplining children, this is part of parental training. It's a crucial aspect of what causes a youth to grow into a mature, responsible adult. We discipline our children because we want that to happen. And we want that to happen because we love them. Because we love them. You ever heard that phrase, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you? When you're a parent, you get that. Because you love them. And you know because of your love for them, you need to discipline them, but you don't like to see them in pain. You don't like to see them crying. But when you look at the big picture, you understand. You understand you love them so much that you're willing for them to endure difficulties at your hand so that the future of their lives is better for them, even if it's a life that you'll never witness. Even if it's at school where you are not present in raising their kids when you are in heaven because you love them. And it's the same with God's discipline of us. Hebrews 12, 6-7. Turn there if you can. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 7. This is a great reminder of what we should do, but a greater reminder of what God does. Hebrews 12, 6 through 7. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Notice, though it is an extra-biblical application of this, but notice the verse does not say, those whom he disciplines, he loves. In other words, if he disciplines you, if he disciplines you, rest assured it's because he loves you. No, he says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. If you are his child, he will discipline you. If he loves you, he will discipline you. So, like we do with our children, God does perfectly with his children. That is, he shows fatherly love through correction severely when necessary. It all indicates his great love and concern for us, his body. The alternative, back in 1 Corinthians 11, is damnation. And that's what Paul says here. He disciplines us so that we would change and grow and not incur the condemnation that the world receives. We understand that our eternity is secure as believers, but this is a great reminder of the holiness of God, the wrath of God, but the loving discipline of God for his children. You see, chastening discipline pushes the sinner back to righteous behavior. In other words, it encourages us to choose holiness over sin. And again, the concept is the same as in your home. I would rather repent of that sin than continue enduring this punishment from the Lord. Even, as we saw earlier, the discipline that results in death is a wake-up call for those of us who remain. 
And though it may be painful, it is proof of our Heavenly Father's love. And in fact, proves from Hebrews 12 that we are His children. Again, as true believers, you cannot lose your salvation. That's not what 1 Corinthians 11 is saying. Nor will you face eternal condemnation. But understand that the fact that you are His children, the fact that you will not receive condemnation, is God's mercy. It's His mercy. It is Him withholding, because of Jesus Christ, His wrath that you have earned. Not that in some sort of lottery that you have been chosen, that you have earned. The wages of sin is death. The wages. What are wages? We call it a salary. We call it hourly pay that you have earned by your work. We have earned condemnation. But because of Jesus Christ, we are no longer condemned. This is the mercy of God. And so we can see how discipline, because we are saved, is also the mercy of God right here in 1 Corinthians 11. And with all of this in mind, what should we do in relation to communion? For the Corinthians, the expectation is clear. And though there's not a direct application to us because we're not having a large meal at communion. We don't have the rich that are hoarding food and letting other people go hungry. There are still aspects of what we're about to read that we can apply to our situation today. Our final point is the plain expectation. We are looking at truths to recognize and preparing for communion. We've seen the present example of the discipline of the Lord in the midst of the Corinthians. We've seen the pardoning examination, the self-examination that would have kept them from judgment and could keep us from judgment, the protecting experience, and finally, the plain expectation. Verses 33 and 34. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Paul's first point in verse 33 addresses the problem that we saw back in verse 21 regarding the wealthy eating first. They were treating the Lord's Supper as a party and wanted to get a head start in their feasting so they could party with their other rich people. This is at church, by the way. And when Paul calls them to wait for one another, it's not just about... uh, waiting until everyone gets there, right? That's what we do. It's, it's, you go out to eat with a group at a restaurant. It's common courtesy uh, to wait till everyone gets their food before you start. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not just talking about good manners. It's waiting until everyone, the rich and the poor and everyone in between, they all get there and are seated at the table so they can eat together But how can they eat together if some come without food? And now you get it. Wait for one another so that you can divide the food up and share so that everyone can eat. Instead of eating all the food beforehand, and by the time the poor get there, there's no food left. Remember, the wealthy did not want to share. This is a call for the Corinthians to stop overlooking the lowly or despised of society, the poor financially, the have-nots, those with nothing. Come with much so you can share with others. They knew they were going to be there. 
That's why they went early. They planned to go early with their other rich buddies, knowing that the poor would come because they didn't want to share. They didn't want the poor people to crash their party, to make them feel bad, to ruin things for them. Let's eat first, guys. And then when everyone comes, then we can do the bread and cup and celebrate the fellowship we have in Jesus Christ. Ironic. Gross. And so if you wait, this not only helps them to be sacrificial and considerate, but also keeps them from shaming the less fortunate, which we saw Paul specifically mention they were doing. So what does this mean for us? Can I, can I summarize all of this, verse 33, what they're supposed to do in a word? Hospitality. Hospitality. So important is this to the Lord that it is a requirement of an elder and a command for all believers in 1 Peter 4.9. More specifically, 1 Peter 4.9 says, be hospitable without com- complaint. <sighs> Fine. I know I'm supposed to be hospitable, but here you go. Or you do it with a smile. Hey, this is the last slice, but I want you guys to have it. Then as you're brushing your teeth, honey, can you believe they took it? Did I not say the word last loud enough? Next time I'll just open the fridge and go, see, no more pie, no more pie, last piece, right? We smile and then we complain or we complain in our hearts. Yeah, we can take them, but uh, their kids always make such a mess. Hospitable with complaint. We need to be hospitable without complaint. Paul continues in verse 34, 1 Corinthians 11. If you're hungry, he says, eat before you come. Well, doesn't that defeat the purpose of a meal together then? No, because you know the context. You know what they were doing. But also, you need to understand that the Lord's Supper, and again, it's not the way we celebrate communion in this church. I don't know many churches that do it like the early church did it. We used to have a potluck after communion. That's not what this is talking about. This was a meal that was incorporated into communion as with the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And so it was primarily to fellowship and celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Not to have a fancy elaborate meal, not to fill their bellies. It was for fellowship. As we said a few weeks ago, they were to keep their dinner parties and their related behavior in the privacy of their own homes. And as we said a few weeks ago, that doesn't mean Paul is saying it's okay to do some of the stuff you're doing in private, getting drunk, for example. He's just saying, don't come to feast. Because if you were invited to a wealthy person's home for dinner, you might want to skip lunch. We're talking about the wealthy here in Roman times, right? You've seen these homes with the big marble columns in front of their houses. They put on a party. They put on a feast. In fact, Some of you have done this. As you're preparing a meal and you invite your friends over, you tell them, come hungry. I made a lot of food and it's going to be good. And so that's totally appropriate in certain circumstances to go to someone's home because they said, hey, I'm going to make a lot. I want you to come hungry. Sometimes we're even told skip lunch because this is going to be a feast. You know you're going to be fed well. You know you're going to be fed a lot. But that's not the case for the Lord's Supper at the church. Yes, it was a meal, but 
like that special holiday meal you have once a year, you see your family once a year, it wasn't about the food, it was about family. It was about family. And you come to the Lord's Supper to satisfy spiritual hunger, not physical hunger. Yes, you'll get food. It's not sinful to eat. You'll get food, but you've got to understand that's not the point, and it shouldn't be your focus. If we were to do something like this, even if we had a potluck, and again, it's very different than what we're talking about here, and you know the potluck lands on the day that we do communion in a way for us to kind of do what they were doing here. And all week you're like, ooh, let me check, up the, check out the Google Doc. Who signed, who's bringing what? Ooh, I can't wait. Instead of being on your knees confessing sin all week because of the glories and the severity of communion and its possible punishment in your life if you take it unworthily, then there's a problem. We're not talking about every Sunday here, but let me apply that. If it's all about, oh, I, yeah, finally, I got to see that person. They owe me money. Oh, they said they're going to bring me something. Oh, they have something for our kids. Oh, this is taking space. I keep forgetting to bring it to church to give it to that, that family that wanted it. Instead of saying, I'm going to fellowship. If it's just to see your friends, if it's just to see your, your, your grown children, your grandchildren, then you've missed the point of this. Be excited to fellowship. Be excited to help people, to get your money back, to give money to people, to see your kids, to see your family, to see your relatives. But that shouldn't be the main point. Just as here in the early church, yes, come, yeah, you'll get some food. Don't worry, especially the poor. It may be the only meal, substantial meal they get all week. But understand the point of why we're getting together. And when they treat the Lord's Supper like a common meal, or when we treat communion or church like just a normal get-together, like we go play ultimate frisbee in the park or hang out and have a meal at someone's house, then Paul says, you come together for judgment. And the way he phrases it, he's saying, what's the point? Why come together for judgment? Deal with your sin. Why would you want to come to church? The greatest source of blessing in terms of a gathering of people, why would you want to come for judgment? Why would you, why would you spend $2,000 on those tickets to the Super Bowl just so you can watch the game on your phone the whole time? Why would you pay $200 to get into Disneyland just because you wanted to go to the store and buy overpriced Mickey ears? You've missed the whole point. You've missed the whole point. And when we miss the whole point, we come for judgment rather than blessing. And what's the point? Part of the point for us is to be blessed. And when you look at what Paul's saying, it's pretty easy. Says, Corinthians, you want to avoid judgment? Some of you are sick. Some of you have died. You want to avoid this? Eat first, then come. That's it. 
Eat first, then come. You know, for us, sometimes having the right heart in approaching the Lord's table or approaching the Lord is as simple as deferring to another time. It's as simple as praying a prayer of confession. It's not that hard. And when we look at them, we say, yeah, just eat first. Why wouldn't you just eat first? This includes all sorts of principles that I'm sure Paul taught you about the poor and giving and sharing and loving and focusing and worshiping. But even as I said, it's as simple as saying, I'm sorry, some of you said or thought, not that easy. And then the issue that we need to repent of is not the inability to say, I'm sorry, it's your pride. It's your insisting that the other person apologize first. Because this will all be done with so long as I am right. You need to take the high ground. And the high ground doesn't mean you concoct some sort of sin in your life that you never have ever committed. But if they're upset at you, maybe it's how you said something, maybe when you said something, take the high ground. Apologize. Because what's most important is that reconciliation, that relationship be fixed. What's least important is your pride. That, that, that's so low on the list, it's not on the list because it's sin. God doesn't even want it. He says, repent of it. And it's not just apologies, it can be anything. Just eat first. And you can see how this would have been hard for them. But no, these are my buddies. No, no, no. I've been, I've been saving this, this special cut of venison for my people who appreciate it. Those poor people, they'll eat anything. I'm not going to give them this. Especially not at the Lord's Supper. That's special. It's pride. But it's, in big picture, it's really not that hard. Finally, very quickly, he ends by referring to other issues he will address when he comes in person. We don't know what they are. We have no way of knowing what they are. If someone definitively tells you this is the issues he's talking about, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't tell us. And so, four truths to recognize in preparing for communion. The present example, discipline is real. The parting examination, deal with your sin, examine yourself. The protecting experience, judge yourself so you won't be judged. The plain expectation. It's very simple. It's very plain. You know what it is. People always ask me, how do I know if I'm sinning? If you're a believer, you know. You have the Holy Spirit. You have a Holy Spirit-inspired conscience. You have the Word of God. You know. And I don't want to take things lightly, but the reality is if you're asking me that, chances are you know you're in sin and you want some sort of pastoral approval that you're not. We've covered a lot over the past four weeks and I hope that this has heightened your sensitivity to what communion is. There may be some deep-rooted sin that needs to be dealt with, something that, as I explained last week, that you may have become so comfortable with 
and your family is so used to that you are no longer convicted or guilt feel guilty, you don't even think it's sin anymore. Maybe there's a long lost relationship that needs to be rekindled or forgiven. You know that sometimes taking communion unworthily and having and harboring sin in your life is forgiving someone who may not even be alive anymore. Forgiveness is powerful. Maybe there's a depth of worship that needs to be rediscovered, rekindled, discovered for the first time. This is true of any day of the Christian life, not just the Lord's Day or Communion Sunday. But when it comes to the Lord's table, I want to close this series. And everything that I have said by giving you a simple phrase that summarizes everything that should be foundational to everything and applying everything that we have said and learned over these past four Sundays. A phrase that should drive all of your application from these sermons. A phrase that summarizes these verses that Paul has said. And the phrase is this. It is, after all, the Lord's table. This has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. For the next part in this series, join us next week at this same time. Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area, practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth. You are invited to join them for worship services in San Mateo, Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit gracebayarea.org for service times, directions, live-streamed services, listen to archived sermons, or to make a tax-deductible donation to help keep Grace to the Bay on the air so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Again, that's gracebayarea.org.